Oh, my stars, Steve. My stars and stripes. We have some exciting news. Shall we tell them? We should reveal that Chinwag is hitting the road again and going on a West Coast tour. Yes, that's right. If you missed us in your fair city, truly, friends, don't fret, don't fear, don't have a panic attack. (laughs) Do not panic. We will be recording live Chinwags in May in Los Angeles, Portland, and Seattle. Yes, in L.A., we'll be at Dynasty Typewriter on May 14th. You can go to chinwagpod.fm slash Los Angeles for tickets. And on May 16th, we're going to be in Portland at Revolution Hall. For those tickets, go to chinwag.fm slash Portland. And we'll be at Town Hall, the great town hall in Seattle on May 17th. For tickets to that, go to chinwagpod.fm slash Seattle. You do not want to miss this. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be mighty, mighty. So get your tickets at chinwagpod.fm, and we will see you there. Come on out, waggers. Come out, waggers. Come out. (laughs) Come out of hiding. Well, well, David, as as an as an atheist, I'm glad you kept to mostly rivers and mountains. That really is it's helpful for me. I know John wants more God literature for really, but there's we had centuries of God focused poetry. Let's yeah. let's broaden it out a little bit. For, yeah, for, yeah. For well, John's got time to work on you, Jordan. So yeah. <laughs> that's well, the real I, reason behind. He doesn't the, know this how podcast. true that, he doesn't know how true that is, David. I know. I'm starting to see a pattern here. Like, all right. Or oh, okay. I get it. All right. I'll go to church on Sunday, Governor. Yes. Fine. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, Jordan, I was uh, reading an interesting article over the weekend. I wondered, uh, you know, it was saying that in the old days, you know, everybody would have to report somewhere to go to work. And, you know, we all had our carols and, uh, you know, everybody was in the office. And it, what it was saying is that there's a lot of people now beginning to uh, to use the office as a kind of a community gathering place, you know, uh, People intellectually, uh, in a, particularly in a knowledge world, can work from home, but people say, well, you know, you're not going to be as collaborative if you're not together. So this this article was saying that, uh, well, you can still be collaborative and everything else, but in a different way. I, I thought it was very, very interesting, which means we have to think about, you know, really think about what the new, new world's going to look like in terms of business and buildings and space and how you use it. And um, I'm sure you've thought about it. Do you have a, a sense of this yourself, particularly when we have a, a person like David coming on here in a few minutes to talk about space and time and and aesthetics and many things? What, what's your sense? Well, I, I will say um, in the creative world, whenever you can get people inside the same room together, that's where the, the magic occurs. You know, uh, from the world of improv comedy, even working at The Daily Show, we would all gather in one little tiny room uh, every single morning. And there's just something about seeing somebody face to face, being able, the energy of the room, being able to bounce off of one another. Like Creatively speaking, it's been really hard in the last couple of years to try to find that energy off of Zoom. There's nothing but distraction. Uh, you can't get a full sense of somebody else. And so I do think moving forward, that is a giant challenge. Personally, I... Uh, you know, whenever I can get an opportunity to go into The Daily Show, I do a lot of stuff in the field right now, but whenever I can get in there, even for editing, which is essentially sitting in a room, giving notes to an editor about what should the final piece should look like, you still can't beat being in the room and trying to find some creative energy there. And so I I don't know what the future holds, but I, I hope it... I hope it finds us in the rooms close to one another because I think that's something you just can't replicate elsewhere. I guess I'm curious about you from a uh, from a governmental standpoint, members of the House, uh, members, members of the Senate, if those chambers are meant to bring people together where you can find some, you're going to have to make uh, uh, friends and collaborate with people on the other side of the aisle. I heard they used to talk about going home after Thursday and how at some point it used to shift where people would stay the weekend. Uh, it wasn't as easy to hop on a train to get back home. Uh, and so they would actually have to live in D.C. 
through the weekend, which meant they were spending the night, which meant they were going out and having drinks with people on the other side when they weren't talking politics, but they were just drinking and talking about life. And sort of as the modern era has approached and people get busier and busier, People don't live in D.C. anymore. And once Thursday hits and uh, uh, your session in the house is done, everybody gets the heck out of there. And what you're losing is the off time. And in the off time is sort of where a lot of that camaraderie was was built. Have, well, have you heard back, that? Yeah. Well, back when I was there, I was out of there on those Thursdays or Fridays, but we used the week. And what we did um, is we, we spent a lot – we did a lot of sports down in the gym, basketball, paddle ball, lifted weights – uh, you know, we, we spent a lot of time and it didn't matter what party you, you were in, you know, you, we were playing and we played very aggressively and we'd have dinners. I mean, we would just get together. And, uh, this is one of the things that I think David feels strongly about our guest today is people have to have those experiences where they can kind of open themselves up. And that's, that's really what I'm interested in, in what our guest is going to talk about, which is how does a human being, number one, find oneself? And then secondly, how can a human being, once they find oneself, be willing to show vulnerabilities to be able to communicate with somebody else? And I think through the course of not just politics, because I'm not in that anymore, in anything, in business, whatever, it's a sense of being able to open yourself up, which a lot of people are afraid of. Uh, they're afraid of change. They're, and that's something we need to ask, ask our guests about. And I know you're a big fan, so maybe you can go ahead and introduce him. And I know you've spent time listening to him and seeing him and uh, go for it. I'm I'm super excited. Well, like we talk about, this is this is a weird podcast. We're getting to know each other. We're we're sharing thoughts and passions, trying to find some common ground. Uh and I think uh, conversations we are we are having right now is about the governor talks a lot about salvaging our humanity. And for me, art is both proof and a tool in our humanity. Uh, I think at its best, it brings us closer to life. Um, that's why I'm super excited about our guest, who is one of my favorite artists out there. He's a, a poet, a philosopher, a speaker, an author of 10 volumes of poetry and four books of prose. Uh, selfishly, uh, I found David's work about a year ago during the, the pandemic. Uh, he has multiple collections of, of poetry, his books, Three Marriages and Consolations, which is an indispensable look at the hidden meaning of words. Uh, I have, I have bored my wife quoting from it. Uh, she hates you, David. She really does. But it's mostly because it's my words paraphrasing your <laughs> succinct, thoughtful words. Uh, also, I thought, who better to like bring us together and give us, uh, a, a break from the, the BS and the squawking than to bring a, a thoughtful poet on here to grapple with some of these issues. So I'd like to welcome the great David White. David, thanks for, for coming and talking to us. Um, it's very good to be here. Yes. David, Jordan Klepper is a very intelligent man. You know, he's, he's, he's highly intelligent. And, and so we hear of him going to the rallies and all that, but we had a very fascinating conversation, you know, and this is cause it's, I don't want this just to be sort of people going to say, Oh, this is just out there. And how is this useful? Well, Jordan used improv to go in and to help people to, to think creatively, to break out of the same old, same old. So here you go in and see these CEOs. I don't know why, if you read them poetry or what the hell you do, but they you seem to get in there. And I think most of this is credit to your accent. You're not that intelligent. It's the accent. That's what's working here. But so if Jordan... I've worked hard would, to keep it. Yeah, that's exactly. So if you would, Jordan... Talk about improv, and because I've told him he ought to continue to do it to a degree, because it's a <laughs> yes. great business. It's a great business, and then for you, David, to talk about how I'm you. Not sure, get that's these... a compliment, Jordan. The, infer <laughs> the inference is you're not doing it now. Yeah, well, yeah, I, yeah, I believe you. <laughs> like, you know, multifaceted. <laughs> I, I, you did pitch or it. You, you were like, what you know, you, you never. This this fame thing is I was fleeting. Trying. The entertainment I was industry. Who knows? <laughs> and then, David, tell us how you get your CEOs to change. Because the last thing, too many. Yeah. Of, what many of them do not want to do is they don't want to change. They want to ride those options right into the sunset. And cash it out. So you try to get yeah. them to change, which is a risk. Yeah. And Jordan tries to get them to think differently. All, well, you know, essential for the functioning uh, uh, of whatever. 
I'll give you context for what the governor and I were talking about. I, uh, David, I uh, come from the world of improv comedy, and I've been an improvisational comedy teacher for for uh, over fifteen years now. And in, in Chicago, I would also teach what they call as business improv, which where you would go and you'd, I, I went down to Duke School of Business and I talked, taught uh, master's students uh, who had no interest in comedy or arts for that matter, um, uh, how to listen, how to build off ideas, how to say yes. Uh, I, I went over to the, um, to Geneva, to the Hadron Collider, where I talked to uh, a bunch of physicists about the same yes. things. Uh, yes. and it was, and what was shocking to me about that at, at first it was like, why do you want to send a bunch of improv comedians over to talk to these brilliant minds about improv? And they were, they were blown away at basic improv steps because in in the world of uh, higher level science, your whole job is to create silos of information and then defend your point of view. And so this idea of letting go of of improvising and to be an improviser, what you do is you have to listen, you have to build off of what somebody else says, and you have to let go of the preconceived ideas you had which aren't all beneficial for scientific discovery, or at least for science, but perhaps for scientific discovery, that, that form of collaboration was, was completely new to a lot of these, these professionals. And, and I, I quickly found out also in the business world uh, how, how little listening was going on. And, and so many of these people were moved by this idea that uh, you need to listen and build off of others' ideas, so therefore this this idea you had in your head can be become something else and something greater. Uh, but I was curious, your experience heading into the the corporate landscape with with something like poetry in your back pocket, it's not exactly yes. what people would assume is going to be successful uh, in a in a in a boardroom. I'm, I'm, yes. I'm wondering, I'm wondering. <laughs> uh, what what that experience was like, and what what you what you were bringing and continue to bring to to that world. I was bullied into doing it because you know I work with I work as a as a straight poet at literary festivals and with a poetry audience. I work with religious and contemplatives, and then I work in the organizational world. But I never set out as a poet to work in that world. I grew up uh, from long lines of the of the disp- dispossessed and Scottish and Irish rebels on both sides. Yeah. Uh, Scots came down and, and made their home in Yorkshire. <clears throat> um, and uh, so I was deeply suspicious of that world, actually, and especially as a serious young, young artist. You know, I, I grew up in a raving socialist part of West Yorkshire, so I was allergic to any large abstract organizational bodies of many kind. But I gave a talk in Washington, D.C. many, many moons ago And at the end of it, there was a lovely fellow there. His name's Peter Block, very famous consultant, actually. And and in best American fashion, he said, we have to hire you. And in best unenthusiastic Anglo-Irish fashion, I said, for what? (laughs) And he said, to come into corporate America. And I said, incredulously, for what? And he said a lovely thing, actually. He said, uh, the language we have in that world is not large enough for the territory we've already entered, actually. And I just heard the language that's large enough for us in your talk. So it was after I'd given my keynote. And I said, really? So anyway, um, he was very persuasive, but I said, no, um, I don't want to. Uh, you know, they, in, I never said it, but I said, I don't want to actually sully my hands <laughs> in the corporate world. <laughs> um, but then he came out, he flew out actually, and asked me a, 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 a second time, you know? And then he came out again and asked me, and uh, I was on the phone to my, my Irish mother actually before he arrived the third time, and I said, he's coming again, mum. And uh, she said, you've already said yes. I said, how do you mean? She says, in Ireland, if you're asked, if you're asked sincerely three times, you have to go. I said, you're right. Yeah. So I tried it out and I actually found that I didn't have to compromise my work at all, that I had this abstracted idea about people in the, in the corporate and business world. That was just not true. And they were very, very hungry for my you know, understanding of what I would call a, a very fancy way of describing it as philosophers would describe it, the phenomenology of conversation, which is just a fancy way of saying what happens along the way when you try to have a real one. Yeah. 
So I've always memorized poetry. I have over 300 poems memorized now. I probably had about 50 or 60 at that time when I first started. And when you recite the poem in the room, it actually creates a physical experience of, and then allows you to talk about something they're just too busy to talk about most of the time or to delve into them themselves, yeah. So a lot of what I work with was why is it so difficult to have those conversations with your colleagues, yeah, with your boss, with your people who report to you, with, with your, uh, your vendors, with your, your customers, yeah. Why are all those conversations difficult in their own way? And I slowly built my I slowly built my articulation of the corporate world. So um, so it's been a long, long journey. And uh, but I use just as much poetry in that world as I do when I'm on stage at the Oxford Literary Festival. And people love it. People are just often in the in the organizational world, and I'm sure John can corroborate this, they're deeply hungry for something that feeds a part of them other than the part that is getting addressed in the busy lighted hours of their days. So they're often just feel, they feel very privileged to be in the presence of the poetry and, and they feel very privileged to be given the time to think about things in a different way. Why am I having such difficulty with this colleague? Yeah. Why won't people respond to the invitations I'm making? Why am I afraid to make any real invitations to other people? You know, these are all phenomena that have real detail behind them that I can, I can, I've learned how to help people uh, take those steps, I suppose. Yeah. You've described a poet's work is to work with, uh, with the questions that, that have no right to go away. Um, which I think is something that we're, we're trying to grapple with here. I'm, I'm curious, when you approach your poetry, uh, is the, what is the place that you start from, uh, and how does poetry begin to answer some of those questions? Well, um, I think strangely, you, um, to, to write good poetry, you have to start uh, with, uh, with an experience of silence uh, in your... Uh, mind and your body and uh, it's the only trustable place from which uh, a new form of articulation can come and uh, partly that's a practical reason because in silence you haven't formulated uh, your beliefs or your uh, your uh, strategies uh, or your prejudices and from that place you can actually meet something other than yourself actually so much of the time when we think we're in a conversation where we're actually just waiting for um, an opening so we can fire off our next piece of informational ammunition at the other person. So uh, I always say, you know, I work with these seven elements, which are um, just my way of passing how a real conversation works. And the first step is always uh, stopping the conversation you're having now. Uh, not ameliorating it, not re-engineering it, not improving it, just stopping it. And uh, we do that in order to drop down to this other foundation inside ourselves. And uh, we instinctively know on a societal level right now that there are so many conversations we need just to stop having. Uh, there's no way of improving them. There's no way of reshaping them. We just have to uh, literally stop having them. The way individual human beings uh, often stop having them is through trauma or difficulty where you run into something that's much larger than your prejudices. Could be the loss of a loved one. You know, it could be ill health or cancer. And this often happens for societies too. I mean, I mean pre, pre Pearl Harbor, uh, America was just as fractious perhaps as it is now. And, uh, and uh, it, was a, it was the national trauma that stopped that conversation and brought everyone together. Better. So the first, the first step is Pearl Harbor? David, I got to say, we, you get, give well, me we some all, more optimism. We all have Pearl Harbors in our life where literally the old world comes to an end, you know, and it often comes through the death of a loved one or uh, through a terrible diagnosis or through your talents just not being recognized anymore. They're all 
they're all deaths, you know, uh, they're all feel to begin with like an attack on something central to our, our society. But there is another time honored way, you know, which is catching, catching things much earlier. I often think most individuals are a good seven to 10 years behind the actual um, frontier of maturation that they're on and they just haven't caught up with themselves. And I think this is probably true of our society today, actually. We, at, at, at a deeper level, we're much further along than we are on the surface. And a lot of those difficult uh, conversations are just just the usual dynamic of our being dragged into our present uh, understanding and into our into a real level of of maturation that's there, and that's true. I think uh, on uh, both extreme sides of the uh, of the aisle and the uh, and and the argument. So you stop the conversation and then you drop down to another foundation and. That foundation, you can use the metaphor of ground, coming to ground, or you can use the metaphor of, uh, of drinking from a deeper well. And um, in order to sustain that internal ground inside yourself, and in a, you have to have a relationship with the unknown. So the second, the second element naturally comes from the first element. I'm, by the way, I'm not going to go through all seven elements, so don't worry. <laughs> I'll stop on the second element here. But, but um, the second element is necessary for keeping the conversation going. You can't endure in the conversation. You can't stand the conversation. It's too frightening unless you have a relationship with silence and with the unknown. Will you extrapolate on that for me? A relationship with, the, like, what does that mean? In, in, in some ways, I understand this conversation from a creative standpoint. Yes. Uh, uh, from difficult conversations you have perhaps with loved ones, even as we step out into two larger conversations, even political conversations. Yes. Uh, stopping the conversation you're having, I think I can intellectually understand that. If you're, if you're, you're having a fruitless conversation because you're not listening and you haven't given yes. silence, you need yeah. to stop that right there. If, if the second one down is that, that deeper well, what, what, is that, what does that functionally mean for uh, – it's, it's something John and I talk about and argue about yes. a decent amount. Yeah. It's like, what, 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 what does that actually look like? Well, first of all, I'd also say that the one of the most powerful conversation to stop is the one you're having with yourself. And I often good luck. say, "Good luck." Yeah, that's uh, that's a nonstop. And I'm not very nice to myself. I got to say, I've had a hard time with that one. Well, exactly. I often say, if you spoke to other people the way you speak to yourself in the mirror, you'd never have another friend in your in your life. You know, uh, so it's all about coercion and bucking up and improving. Um, so this is why all of our great contemplative and religious and indeed our artistic traditions at their core have always asked us to have some discipline of quiet where you can meet someone else than the person who's afraid at the periphery. Yeah. And the further out we are the, from this inner foundation, the more fractious and fearful we are. And if you think about our educational systems, when were you ever rewarded in the classroom for not knowing? But it probably was an abiding experience of your educational life. I, I was in, a, in a, a classical education in the north of England. I grew up, you know, in a very fierce schooling, but I spent half the time not understanding what was going on, but fascinated by what was being addressed. So, so the, the person who was rewarded was the person with their hand up who had the right answer. Yeah. But when were you ever rewarded for saying, I'm really fascinated by this, but I have absolutely no idea what you're talking about, which is actually what it's not only what we experience in our educational systems, but actually most of the time, yeah. you're only rewarded for having a hard answer. Yeah. You know, I grew up in sciences, actually. I gave up my art subject because I saw Jacques Cousteau sailing across our little television set. I studied uh, I put myself into the salt mines of biology, chemistry, and physics. I came out with a degree in marine zoology, and I went to the Galapagos Islands. I worked as a naturalist there. Um, but um, when I got to those islands, I found that none of the animals had read any of the zoology books that I had read. Yeah. 
And a lot of the answers that I'd been taught to give, which I'd been rewarded for, were absolutely nonsensical. Uh, these Latinate names that Linnaeus, uh, uh, Linnaeus developed, you know, in Sweden in the 18th century, which were so useful for everyone talking about the same thing. They allowed scientists to talk across, across national barriers and understand that they were talking about the same animal instead of the common name in the local language. But it didn't mean to say that the name was accurate as to what you were actually seeing. Yeah. So we all have this, we all have this misunderstanding about nomenclature. And we give names to, we give names to our spouses, uh, to our dogs, uh, to our friends, to our colleagues, to our fellow citizens, and to ourselves that are too small for us. Yeah. Uh, whatever definition we've arrived at, the conversation, a real conversation, meeting something other than yourself will blow that definition apart. Yeah. So I always say no one survives a real conversation. Um, and what we're trying to do is get down to a place inside ourselves that's actually robust enough to meet something other than itself. The part of you on the periphery is too afraid of the other per person's opinions and of you yourself changing your mind because you've actually put the eggs of your identity into that basket. So you don't feel as if you're losing the argument. You feel as if you're dying at a, at a very central physical level. Yeah. And we have a massive kind of, kind of societal fear of having a real conversation. And so I think I heard you speaking beforehand that much of our exchange is passed through through too much abstraction and that abstraction is in the in the internet of course a lot of the time where i can be corroborated in all of my fears and all of my names that i've that i've uh mistakenly given to things we'll be right back bocas del toro panama a secluded seaside hideaway Scott Makeda has no idea that his tropical haven is about to become his personal hell. He literally said, I have the power of Satan. A serial killer pretending to be a therapist. Holbert rents a room and that's where he set up his business as a fake shrink. Accusations of a gringo mafia. Gun running, drugs. A slaughtered family. And then he goes back and he plants another bullet. A killer on tape. Hey man, I'm guilty. Everybody knows I'm a monster. The law of the jungle is simple. Survive. From Tree Fort Media and Village Roadshow Entertainment Group, this is Natural Selection, Scott versus Wild Bill. I'm your host, Candace DeLong. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And now back to the show. David, I didn't know really anything about you until I had an opportunity to read some of your poetry. And I, you know, I don't know if you know who Helmut Thielke is. He was a philosopher and theologian at the time of, of Hitler. And mm. he's, I am a huge fan of his. And he talks mm. about the fact that human beings, whenever they have silence, they want to run towards noise. And I, I think it's probably because contemplation sometimes can be extremely difficult. You're all yes. alone. That's why when you write about walking in the night and no one's with you, that you find yourself on a walk, and it's very rich, and I agree with that. You mentioned tragedy, you know, and I think the one thing out of tragedy we can find, and I have been through some myself, is that you have a chance to find yourself you have a chance to dig down deep and say, who am I and what am I made of? And then you talk about overcoming shyness. I love that. Mm. And, you know, I have some really good friends. And I have some friends who say, why do you have those good friends? And I said, well, because we're vulnerable with one another. You know, if I'm hurting, I tell them I'm hurting. If I'm happy, I tell them I'm happy. If they say, Why, what are you afraid of? I'm not afraid to tell them about my deepest fears. That's not for everybody. You don't cast your pearls before swine. But when I come to love somebody, I feel safe enough to tell them. Yes. Isn't that, isn't that where we are today, that people move so fast today? 
And people feel so vulnerable to sharing themselves that someone will take advantage of them. That it doesn't just affect us in, it doesn't just, politics is minor. That's trite compared to our culture and our way of life. Isn't that why people, so many people are lonely today? Because they can't find those people where they feel comfortable enough or they're not willing to take a risk. Yeah. So if you agree with all that, the question is, to those who are listening to this thing, you're lonely. You feel like you're not really connecting with somebody and you're really afraid. How do they take the first step of being able to say, this is who I am, David, and I want to tell you about something that really scares me. Maybe you can help me. How do you take that first step? Because that's what's vital here, right? Quiet, find yourself, connect with somebody else, and open open yourself. It's just the most wonderful thing when you do it, isn't it, David? Yes, and the hardest thing in the world if you're caught inside yourself, as you say. I often think that the only way of overcoming shyness is not to feel bad about your shyness, that it's actually a diagnostic feature that you're in the presence of something you want. Yeah. And uh, if we think about the classic shyness, which, which is when you're out with someone uh, who, whom you're uh, fatally attracted to, and you don't know what to say, how to say it, <laughs> or if you're on your first date, what to wear. Yeah. And you also want to escape from your body and go in five different directions at once, up, down, north, west, east, <laughs> and just be gone. Um, so shyness is actually a marvelous indication that you're in the presence of something that is quite precious to you that you don't know you just don't know how to begin the conversation. So first of all, if you're feeling shy, uh, just to try and actually experience it more in a very physical way and see how what it turns into. And what it almost turns in, almost always turns into is what you articulated, which is a very, very vulnerable invitation. Yeah. I mean, um, that's one of the elements I work with, which is, uh, which is uh, once you've stopped the conversation, come to ground uh, in silence and then met something other than yourself, which is often in the form of a, a shock or a sense of revelation or surprise, which can trigger the shyness. Then in order to deepen the conversation, you have to follow the path of vulnerability. And vulnerability comes from the Latin word meaning wound, you know, where you're open to the world, whether you want to be or not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No matter what you do, you'll always feel, um, you'll always feel undone in that way. There's no amelioration for it. You're just made that way, actually. But there's a way of actually cultivating what I call robust vulnerability. So almost all invitations to other people are made along this trajectory or path of vulnerability. Um, but we tend to think, no, I can't be vulnerable. People won't appreciate me unless I've got something marvelous to say, unless I, you know, unless I'm uh, tap dancing into the workplace and being that charismatic yeah. paragon of perfection. But what really complements another person is when another person asks you for help and says, says to you, actually, you have something that I don't have, and could you help me with it? Yeah, Boy, and you have something that no one else has. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, it, it's and once you take yes. that first step, it's like liberating. You know, yes. don't do it to the wrong yeah. person. Uh, did you, but so many uh, people feel so imprisoned. Uh, you know, and well, and that's why we thoughts. have mental illness. Yeah, that's cause. That's yes. the cause of mental illness, depression, and loneliness. So people who are listening to this need to think about the fact it is okay to tell your mom, your dad, your wife, your friend, I'm hurting, I'm alone, I'm fearful, that that will show you that your greatest weakness is your strength. But David, I in following you, and you live somewhere out near the Straits of Juan de Fuca, I think, I mean, that's kind of, you know, that's a God's country out there. And I, I see you talk about, you know, what you did in the Galapagos, the land, there's something about the land, you know, and then I stop and I yeah. think about impressionists, the impressionist painters who they flourished off the land, you know, the beautiful landscapes. 
I've been reading a book about Frank Lloyd Wright, who decided to use the land. He said, we've rejected the land in our buildings, and now we use the land like falling water over in Pennsylvania, where he used the land. This this ability to be connected to the land, to take that walk, isn't that isn't that what kind of sets us free? Jordan mentioned it earlier about how artists work. Isn't that what allows our spirit, our soul, to fly when we are connected somehow to the land, and even if it's a walk around the block, right? Yeah, I think uh, I think landscape um, is nourishing because um, everything out in the in the natural world is just itself. The cloud is a cloud. Uh, the mountain is the mountain. Uh, the forest is the forest. The path is the path. And it's not trying to improve itself or trying to, it's just itself in conversation with everything else. So human beings get a sense of the possibility that they also might be just okay, just as they are. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the remarkable things about being human in this, in, in the created elemental world is that we're the only portion of creation that we know of that can refuse to be itself. A crow just gets to be a crow. The mountain gets to be the mountain. It doesn't have any choice. The crow doesn't wake up and say, I'm fed up of this whole crow trip and I'm going to, I'd love to be a kingfisher for a day, you know, but we, we uh, can actually refuse to be ourselves, which is really quite a remarkable ability when you think about it. So I do think that every human being take that takes even a step towards being more of their foundational self is is embarking on on what is a, a miraculous journey yeah. so the natural world you know is can be incredibly nourishing that way i but also if we go to a place of deep silence you can actually start to see other people in the same way you start to see the essence of them uh, instead of what they're presenting to you by way of articulation and beliefs, yeah, that's I I find that fascinating. Do you think you are someone? Correct me if I'm wrong. Your, your mother is from Ireland and your father from Yorkshire, England. Correct? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, your uh, your time in the Galapagos, you've you you have a very international perspective. D- do you feel? Uh, you feel there's something in the American character, essentially in American exceptionalism, that uh, that creates this narrative of 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 greatness and uh, uh, invulnerability in a way that makes it difficult for the American character to to let go of their identity based on beliefs, to let go of uh, success. Earlier, you talked about. I, I wrote yeah. it down because I loved it. I, I speak to a lot of folks at, at at rallies. I go to MAGA events, and you said people don't feel like they're losing the argument. It feels like you're dying, yes. uh, and and that's what I'm witnessing. It, people people will ask me, uh, do those folks not see the the logic logical disparity in the conversation? Do they not see uh, that? People are being hypocritical in their beliefs. You're like, it's it's not a conversation about what people no. see. It's 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 about who it's about their identity. And these things are connected to who they are. And if you poke a hole in that, you're poking a hole in them as humans. And I yes. I, I wonder from your perspective, is that something that's uniquely uh, a, an American trait and or flaw? Well, you know, um, we human beings have always really believed very strange things. And usually we have one coercive power in place that tells you, you will only believe these particular strange things, you know, <laughs> because we don't want a civil war. Yeah. And uh, that, that ghettoization of beliefs as, uh, as metastatized and uh, even more so in the States. I'm not someone who can answer exactly why, why it's happened to such an exaggerated degree in the United States. I mean, Britain has the same internet and Ireland, but it, it's not atomized in the same way the States has. Every culture has really strange things it believes about itself because of historical trauma, whereby they, at one time, they had to believe them in order to survive. Uh, I didn't mean to say they were true. So you had a lot of beliefs which were formed around the revolution and the separation from Britain, you know, which people needed to believe in order to make that separation, but they're not necessarily true. 
So the idealization of the constitution, which is a kind of shibboleth and uh, taboo, you almost can't say, but uh, it could be that the, uh, that the most flawed thing about <laughs> this is, this I'll probably regret saying this, but it could be that the most flawed thing about North America is its constitution. Whereas most people are brought up to believe that that's the opposite, that's true. And that's, that needs to be revel. How we would do it, I don't know. I think it's impossible in this, in this, uh, in this time to, to redo it. But at least the first step would be understanding uh, how flawed our inheritance is. So Britain has really strange things it believes about itself. Uh, Ireland has really strange things it had to believe about itself. So the, f the first step is stepping out from your cultural mantle. And uh, I'm sure John uh, knows how difficult that would be as a politician, where you're held in some ways uh, in a claw-like grip by the mythological inheritance of the country. Yeah. There are certain things you can't say as a politician that I can say or Jordan can say, yeah. because they touch off an allergic reaction in the culture because of what you, what you represent. Yeah. Um, I have a poem I've done in my latest uh, book called Still Possible. It's called The Edge You Carry With You. And it looks at the, at the trauma you had as uh, every human being has traumas as a child. You know, the traumas you carry with you that into every conversation uh, to one degree or another. Um, whether, we're, whether we're mature enough to face up to our previous traumas or the traumas we've inflicted on other people, I've always, you know, really disliked bullies, uh, um, but I've just been examining the one time in my life when I was probably 13 or so where I was a bully with one boy, yeah, and trying to face up to that and apologize. You know, the, I don't know where the boy is now, I don't, but there's some kind of necessary apology I have to make and some kind of... Um, some kind of compensation I have to make in my life in order to, in order to uh, fully understand why I did that. Yeah. It was for a very short time. It was just for a week, actually. But I, uh, but I still carry it with me, actually, to this day and, and wonder why, why I actually inflicted that pain on that, on that boy. I mean, it wasn't physical pain. It was more... It was, it was, it was emotional pain. And uh, most of the rest of my adolescent, I was defending people against bullies, but that I had my own hand in it. And it's only years later that I'm actually coming to face up to that. Yeah. David, is, is it possible? Would, would you share that poem with us? Is that possible? Uh, yes. If you just give me a minute to find it here. I don't have it in my memory because it's a new poem. Mm-hmm. As David's looking for it, I'd like to follow up on that with a question to the governor. I think, David, I think you you bring up something very interesting. Yes. There is like there's uh, there's a privilege to vulnerability, and uh, and governor, that's something that perhaps in a position of power we don't see. Uh, you can't be that vulnerable. Is is, is there an inherent? I know your desire to be so to to be open and to bring a conversation to a place where you can be that open with one another. Is the political sphere even uh, uh, is is it, is it ready enough, or is is there possibility lie in that as a a place where people can be open and vulnerable? Yeah, there, yes, of course. But but you got to understand. And I've been yes, I've been in media, I've written books. Yes, uh, I've been in business. I'm in business now. And so I observe people across all these, all the, the spectrums of life. Yes. You know, Jordan, in my job, I used to meet with people who lost sons, daughters, or spouses in war. And we'd sit, and I would tell them the story of my loss, and sometimes I would cry. I don't mean, you know, boo-hoo cry, but I would cry and be emotionally upset. And I had, you know, a great emotional victories too, where yes. it brought the same type of emotion kind of on the reverse side. 
No, I think the more that we can say, and you know, we we've been into this the last couple times we've spoken about recognizing the 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 intrinsic value of another human being. And when you open yourself up, not always, because they're shy too, and they're afraid too, but there's more a chance of, of their being open to open up. And it's such a great experience. I've been set free. So these things just don't bother me. You know, I'm not afraid to have somebody think I'm too upset or silly or whatever. But I think that is one of the answers to say, look, I know you have fears and I want to connect with your fears. I want to understand you. Yes. I wasn't going to tell you this, uh, guys, but, you know, because this is pretty personal and I want you to think I'm completely wacky here. But I can remember last fall taking a walk through a forest. Uh, It's a park not far from my home. And Jordan, it was a gorgeous day with the sun just shining through the beautiful leaves of the trees. And the trees would shade the sun and the sun would shine through the leaves. And as I walked, David, I looked in the kind of towards the horizon that you talk about. I looked towards the horizon. And what I imagined I saw was what it was going to be like when I leave the earth. That as I walked farther and farther into those woods, there would be people that would come out to greet me and eat me and and to meet me as I went farther and farther into those woods. It was such a sweet and amazing and wonderful perception of death, because I know you talk about death. You talk about, are we ready for it, the road to death? You talk about, you know, the omission, the sins of omission was what you were talking about here on this bully. Yeah. But I wanted to tell you that story. Yeah. Because I think in some Here's ways, image, th- yeah. th- it's an image. I hope you can capture it. I hope it doesn't yeah. sound silly to people listening. Yeah. But I remember it like it was yesterday. And it was yeah. so beautiful and peaceful and hopeful and positive. Yeah. And I went home and told my wife, and she said, go walk some more. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah. We'll be right back. And now back to the show. So this is about this piece is called the edge you carry with you. Why is it, um, why is it so difficult to be happy, uh, for human beings? And, uh, why is it, uh, so difficult to drop down to a place we often only visit rarely, uh, where we experience the rightness of the world more than we do the, the wrongness, uh, of other people or, or our circumstances. So this is the edge you carry with you. What is this beguiling reluctance to be happy? What is this beguiling reluctance to be happy? This quickness in turning away the moment you might arrive, the felt sense that a moment's unguarded joy might after all just kill you. This felt sense that a moment's unguarded joy might after all just kill you. You know so very well the edge of darkness you have always carried with you. You know so very well the edge of darkness you have always carried with you. You know so very well your childhood legacy, that particular inherited sense of hurt given to you so freely by the world you entered. And you know too well by now the body's hesitation at the invitation to undo everything others seemed to want to make you learn the body's hesitation at the invitation to undo everything others seemed to want to make you learn. But your edge of darkness has always made its own definition secretly as an edge of light. But your edge of darkness has always made its own definition secretly as an edge of light. And the door you closed might, by its very nature, be one just waiting to be leant against and opened. And happiness might just be a single step away on the other side of that next unhelpful and undeserving thought. You're away home now understood, not as an achievement, but as a giving up, a blessed undoing, an arrival in the body, and a full rest in the give and take of the breath. This living, breathing body always waiting to greet you, this living Breathing body, always waiting to greet you at the door, always, no matter the long years you've been away, still wanting you to come home. 
this living, breathing body, always waiting to greet you at the door, always, no matter the long years you've been away, still wanting you to come home. Thank you. Well, David, I, I, I've heard you recite uh, your poems before, and I, it, it always, uh, I think, your, your recitation is, uh, to me, it's, it's reminiscent of, um, of song and also of, forgive me, but of like stand-up comedy. Uh, and, and not in the, the premise punchline, but in the rhythm and the, uh, the underlining of themes and ideas. I think the, uh, the best Chris Rock stand-up yeah. comedy specials, uh, even if you, you didn't understand a word he was saying, you understand the rhythm and that he goes back into the chorus of the idea throughout it. And I feel like with, with poetry, uh, the experience of listening to you perform it, it, it feels as if you're guiding the audience along uh, uh, and, and finding little moments for people to slow down and, and, and catch up with, which is, I, I find rather remarkable. Do you, how, how do you approach uh, a reading in that sense? Well, I've always found um, poetry readings where the poet just runs straight through the poem to be um, actually quite an assault on the soul because often you've heard something that's quite remarkable and you're already on to the next thing and you haven't had time to actually take in what was, so you feel as if you're being dragged through a hedge backwards. You know, in the Greek theater, the chorus was there to repeat whatever the gods had said because when the gods spoke, you couldn't hear it the first time. You couldn't take it in. It was too big. It's too traumatic so it was repeated by the chorus so that you could actually understand and take it in fully yeah. well we have this you know when john earlier uh, uh, talked about speaking you know in a very meaningful way with other people about loss and grief whenever you have to bring news of loss or, or death to another person you will always repeat yourself three times you will say everything in three different ways the other person must hear what you what you've said but they also must understand that you care about what they're hearing at the same time you will you will use repetition you will use silence yeah and you will actually in english you will also fall into iambic, iambic pentameter which is the main rhythm that shakespeare used in his in other words, when a human being is on their very edge trying to touch another person, they speak in poetry. Yeah. Poetry is not an abstract art. Poetry is the way human beings speak when they are most centered and from that center most in touch with another person. Yeah. David, I want to get to the children. I want to save that for the for, at least for my last question, but you say, and I so agree with you, life is short. Yes. Yeah. I mean, do we really believe life is short? You know, I, I sometimes we know that life is short, but I'm not sure we believe it. Do we? I mean, <laughs> well, and, I think people people don't believe it until they suddenly do. You know, when you're <laughs> yeah. when you're 21 years old, you you don't believe you're going to die. Actually, you think someone else is going to die, someone you're going to become, but actually, you're never going to become that person. Right. So, and then suddenly at 51, uh, it's very personal. You are going to die. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's spoiler and alert. And there's, also, there's also the, the uh, corollary feeling that actually the rest of creation might be quite relieved to see you go. <laughs> Speaking of uh, looking at your own mortality, I do feel that these last couple of years has been a lot of that, both with... Uh, the world kind of shutting down. I also became a father these last couple of years. And so okay. uh, yes. uh, everything sort of shifted about what is important. Uh, and how do you, how do you find, how do you find joy when the world is shut down and you don't know where yeah. it was, will go? I will, yeah. I will say uh, a poem of yours, everything is waiting for you. I found really resonated with me. And there yes. is, there's a line from that that I, I absolutely I absolutely love, and it, uh, I'm going to try to. I know you have all of it. I, alertness uh, is the hidden discipline of familiarity. Well uh, done, yeah, is, exactly, is that, yeah. yeah. I I pondered over that so many times, and I really loved it. And to me, it was a. I think your poetry uh, is so thoughtful and in, invites the the listener or the reader to 
to draw themselves to it and find what is important to it about them. But I also think it's applicable in many ways. And to me, what I, I loved about that poem and about that that moment is it, it does feel like it is a reminder to stay to stay present and to make the small moments things of importance that uh, you talk of the conversation of the small things around you and how yes. those are those are waiting for you essentially to uh, take you to that next step of being or leave you in that own space right now if you if you are yes. alert I will even say I've mischaracterized that of of awareness I think I, I was telling my wife about it we were talking about this and I said awareness is the hidden discipline. And then yeah. I went back. I was like, "Oh shit! I, it's not awareness; it's alertness." Uh, which I think what is is lovely about poetry is it draws you into also to decide word usage. And I'm like, "It's it, the difference to me between alertness and awareness is there's an energy behind alertness. There's an action taken as opposed yes. to a a passive uh, a passive sitting, I suppose, and letting it come to you." Yes, uh, and in and in the best conversation, it's happened here between us all is where. Um, you suddenly overhear yourself saying something. Uh, you haven't teed it up at all. Uh, you've just overheard. And that's how good poetry is written too, is overhearing yourself say things you didn't know you knew. And quite often didn't want to know, thank you very much, because you were, ju you were just as happy not knowing <laughs> your previous identity. But that's another story. Yeah? So, yeah, alertness, it's this, um, from this other part of you, um, that's, witness yeah i have this essay on friendship where you're saying you know there's all kinds of lovely beneficial things around self-improvement in friendship but the most powerful dynamic in friendship is witness the fact that someone has seen you and decided to persevere with you and accompany you and you've done the same with them the fact that they must have forgiven you in order to stay friends because you will always say the wrong thing at the wrong time to your good friend yeah on accidentally on purpose yeah and they will do the same for you you've forgiven each other forgiveness is also a kind of witness you've seen you've seen the worst of someone and you honorably stay with the most honorable part of them yeah so this alertness to what is essential yeah allows us to be compassionate and forgiving and present yeah, yeah. here's the thing david i'm I, that's why you know these are the things i think I'll, i spend most of my time thinking about but there's one other three-letter word that i think should be in here and that's g-o-d god and i think that god has gotten a bad rap uh and we've given god a bad rap you know and to me you find god in silence you find God in patience. You find God in prayer. You find God in yourself. You find God in others. And I think this needs that he doesn't need my rescuing him. He can do it on his own. But I think any effort that can be used to explain to people this is not about some finger coming out of the sky pointing at you. This is about this is about something so big and so amazing and so wonderful that you have to connect to it. Uh, one of the other theologians I, 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 I've read said that plugging into God is like taking plugging into a, a special power system that you wouldn't have unless you do it. Um, I'm not here to tell you which God. There's only one God, but how you get to him, I'm not going to tell you that. But would you just have a comment on, because you're not as yeah. direct about this, and it was, it was interesting to yes, me. Yes, yeah. Well, partly, John, it's because um, I try to speak to as large a constituency as possible, including uh, large parts of myself. And there are huge swathes of the human population who are just allergic to the word God. So the, to be able to speak to that phenomena without actually mentioning it allows me to speak, speak to all kinds of constituencies. Mm -hmm. Uh, but when I have the excuse to, if I, I'm in a theological situation in a monastery, then I can let fly in that area. And I also, you know, I, um, the other side of the political spectrum from me, but yet I love speaking in the deep South um, because people there have a cradle to grave relationship with the King James Bible. Therefore, they have a really phenomenal lexicon and they have a really phenomenal understanding of quite, uh, quite complicated 
language. Mm-hmm. So I love speaking and I love being able to talk about the things uh, that they normally talk about in one way that I talk about in a different way uh, that we and we can both arrive there together. Uh, so uh, I'd say that's the reason I I uh, I uh, rarely mention that word. Yeah. So, but uh, as uh, as uh, Jung said, uh, um, "Vocatus at que non vocatus deus aderit." Called or not called, God will be there. Well, well, David, as as an as an atheist, I'm glad you kept to mostly rivers and mountains. That really is. <laughs> It's helpful for me. I know John wants more God literature for really, but there's we had centuries of God focused poetry. Let's yeah. let's broaden it out a little bit. For, yeah, for, yeah. For well, John's got time to work on you, Jordan. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's well, the real I, reason behind. He doesn't know how podcast. true that, he doesn't know how true that is, David. <laughs> I know. I'm starting to see a pattern here. Like, all right. Or oh, okay. I get it. All right. I'll go to church on Sunday, Governor. Yes, Fine. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what? I I will say it all. Honestly, I'm I I am not a believer, uh, but uh I, I do find profundity in in the arts and I do think poetry, things that lead you to to nature and things outside of yourself to me is uh a, a spiritual endeavor and that's how yes. I I quell that part of my soul. Hey, um the last question. We don't have to get into the poem, we can have people search for it. But you just wrote about your daughter, the daughter of yes, my daughter yeah, asleep. The, yes. And just as a, you know, my kids are going to be 22. Yes. They were so little when they, they were born in 2000, obviously. I mean, there's nothing like the love. You know, and yes. I find that the love for my wife now grows even deeper because of the responsibilities and the ways in which she's dealt with my daughters. Yeah. Well, this, uh, this poem, My Daughter Asleep, um, I was carrying my daughter when she was just the smallest mite on my shoulder. Yeah. And, um, and you know, at that age, you're, all your prayers, whether you're an atheist or not, are to do with complete and utter protection, yeah. both in the moment, but for their future at the same time. Yeah. And the moonlight was falling through the window on her little hand. And you probably know, Jordan, when a child's about to fall asleep, their hand starts opening and closing. It's a very strange Mm -hmm. uh, phenomenon. And I was looking into that little hand and I saw these tiny little lines. And of course, when we're, when we're looking into the palm of a person where we're psychologically looking into their future, their lifelines, and I realized I had a very powerful experience that I wouldn't, I might not be there. Something could happen to me tomorrow and I wouldn't be there for her. Yeah. And so I put together, I said a prayer then as I was, as I was carrying her for protection in the future if I was not around. Yeah. And, uh, and I called on the powers of the world, you could say, uh, to, uh, to look after her. I think the that there is such a feeling of looking at that little child uh thinking about their future both of it, excitement of what is to come and and fear of what is to come uh yes. and and a, and a reminder to to live in that moment but also to not escape and try to live in that present moment as much as you can uh, yes uh, a, a the interesting question. the interesting phenomenon about that poem is when my daughter who's now 24 hears it if if i recite it on stage and she's in the audience first of all she always breaks down but secondly it always puts her back in touch with her own future hmm. like a physical handshake you know with her the horizon that's calling her you know i um when i was when my wife was pregnant, it was during the pandemic, and uh, we were trying to come up with names and yes. <clears throat> wanted to give some sort of uh, a nod to somebody outside of ourselves, not just a, a fun, clever name. And uh, it was a dark time, and 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 still is yes. in many ways. And I think it was like, is is there is there a, is there a person from our our local past or local history that? <laughs> um, 
that that is that is positive in some way could bring some sort of hope or light and i was to be quite honest feeling rather pessimistic about our country and and not looking at many of our our figures uh, even historical figures in 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 the best light and um we stumbled on some poems by Brooklyn's own, which is where we live, uh, Walt Whitman, and who spoke so eloquently about democracy uh, from the perspective of, of the people that make up a country and the, the, the ideas and the, the divergent thoughts. And that's it, it felt like he spoke so beautifully about America, politics aside. And so we ended up naming our little boy Wit sort of in honor of that and and hopefully, yes. hopefully he th- hopefully he thinks it was a, a lovely gesture and not a, a difficult name to uh, to spell when they leave out the H's. But uh, yes. but I, I think there is something about that small little gift to to kids as they move into that future. Yes, you should let him know at frequent in- intervals about why. Yes, yeah, that's good. <laughs> um, well, uh, David, this was. Uh, Really wonderful. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, yes, we just scratched the surface, but it was a great it was a great uh, time together there. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, sir, very much. Yes, lovely. And David White's latest collection of poems titled Still Possible is available now. And go to davidwhite.com to find more of his work and information on his current virtual seminar. David, thank you. Hey, everybody. Jordan here, uh, your favorite host of the Kasich Klepper podcast. Thank you for listening this far. If you like what you hear, click like or thumbs up or whatever icon signifies a positive reaction. We love your ratings. We love your thoughts. Reach out to us on social media. Let us know what you want us to talk about because I'm tired of answering the governor's questions and I just prefer to answer yours. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Kasich and Klepper is a production of Treefort Media, hosted and executive produced by John Kasich and Jordan Klepper. Treefort Media's executive producers are Kelly Garner, Lisa Ammerman, and Matthew Kugler. Line producer is Oscar Guido. Audio direction by Tom Monahan, head of audio for Treefort, with production and editing by Maxwell Carney. Talent booking by Blythe Asher. With additional production help from Tim Schauer, Haley Mandelberg, Colin Motel, and Anastasia Ibrahim. This podcast is powered by Acast.